Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 13th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. It's been called a rat with wings, but the pigeon, which is actually a kind of dove, has a rich history and probably a very fertile future. Journalist Courtney Humphreys became so fascinated with the ubiquitous bird that she wound up writing the new book Super Dove, How the Pigeon Took Manhattan and the World. We spoke in Manhattan in the Scientific American Library. Courtney, good to talk to you today. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here. So uh, let me just quote from your book. Pigeons were a fact I had taken for granted. And and the rest of the book really kind of springs from that. And pigeons, we, we all take pigeons for granted, really. But it's fascinating. How are they doing what they do? Why are they so successful in in our modern urban environments? Yes, well, pigeons uh, have actually a very long, complicated history with people, and there are a few reasons why they do so well in cities and why they're uh, found very abundantly in cities all over the world. Some of that is just sort of a happy accident. Uh, Pigeons, their original environment is living on cliff sides and rocks, uh, and it just so happens that people have built buildings that are a perfect uh, home for pigeons because they have nooks and crannies and things that imitate uh, natural cliffs. Also, pigeons uh, are granivores, so they eat grains and seeds, and it happens to be that people uh, have built their civilization on agriculture, so pigeons have plenty of food around uh, when, when they're near people. But also, people have had a role in making pigeons as successful as they are today. And that's one of the things I was interested in with this book, is that pigeons have been domesticated for thousands of years by people. And uh, in that process, uh, people have really um, actually given them some qualities that make them such great, uh, well, pests, I guess, today (laughs) in cities. Such great sky rats is uh, what you quote Woody Allen, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, So what are some of those qualities that make them so good at surviving among us? Well, you know, when they were uh, domesticated animals, uh, they're uh, selected to be able to breed abundantly. Um, so they well, we should point out because they were being eaten. Yeah, so, you know, normally you want your uh, domesticated animal to produce itself, reproduce itself over and over. So, uh, you know, when pigeons get into cities, they can actually breed all year round in a lot of cases. Um, they also uh, would have been bred to survive in really confined areas, um, like lofts, um, and so they're hardy animals, disease-resistant. They can, you know, reproduce and then also uh, live in these very dense communities. What's interesting about pigeons is that even though they were domesticated, they the way they were domesticated, um, they could also fly freely, um, uh, during the day, and they would often, you know, they might be kept near a farm, and then they would go out and feed on fields during the day for themselves. They never lost the ability to find food for themselves. So we really bred this bird that um, could live in cities, was used to people, so could tolerate noise, could tolerate being around people, um, can breed like heck, and they can also um, go out and find food for themselves. So they're really a perfect urban bird. We created this Frankenstein that a lot of people complain about today. Yes, in a lot of ways we did um, through this process of domestication. And then um, gradually pigeons have become 
uh, wild again. So, you know, t the pigeons that are here uh, in New York, they were brought here for food originally. They're not native here. They were brought um, over from Europe. But they were able to live on their own uh, and have eventually become feral pigeons. So they live uh, around people, and, and they depend on people to some extent, but they're not domesticated anymore. They're wild. So there's, there's actually still a lot of interesting science. There's a whole bunch of cultural stuff mm -hmm. related to pigeons that you get into in the book. There's also a lot of science. For example, you know, their famous ability to home. To you, you, One guy describes putting him on a turntable to confuse uh -huh. them further while he drives 100 miles away from home, and they still find their way home, yes, no problem. Yes, they, they have an uncanny ability. You know, scientists have tried all these different experiments. They put goggles on them. You know, they, they do all these things to try to uh, mess up their ability to find their way home, and they're very good at, at getting back home. There's the Cornell researcher you discuss who whose research projects sort of developed out of his attempt to get rid of them, but they just kept coming back. Yes, I know. They're they're amazing. And a lot of the, those are specially bred homing pigeons that they're using, but they're really, it's the same species as, as that you see on the street. They've just been, um, they've been bred uh, for about 100 years or so um, to, to be a little bigger, stronger, and, and they're trained, so they, they're very good at coming back. Um, but all pigeons have that ability. But we still don't really understand how they do it, do we? It's not to it's not fully understood. I mean, there are they have a, a magnetic compass, uh, sort of built-in compass, where they can actually um, use the Earth's magnetic fields to orient themselves, and they also use the sun uh, to orient themselves. But they also find their way home using a variety of ways, like roads. You know, they use landmarks, especially when they're closer to home when they've they can see things that they've seen before they also rely on smell um, but it's not really clear how each pigeon does this so each individual one might be doing it in a totally individual way yeah they might be relying on uh, different qualities or different um, abilities that that, um, that they have you know whether the the sun is out that day maybe they'll rely on the sun more but but they have a lot of different ways of, of doing it so if one if you know it's a cloudy day, they can still they can still get home even if they can't see the sun. And you tell this amazing story in the book about attempts, uh, and B. F. Skinner was involved to basically have guided missiles, <laughs> bombs that the that pigeons would be the pilot of. Yeah, that's that's kind of an amazing story because because it's true and it just sounds so fantastic, but. But B.F. Skinner did have a project uh, in World War II uh, to develop a pigeon-guided missile. Um, <laughs> and uh, it seemed like it was working pretty well. I mean, the, the, he trained these pigeons to be able to find a target. You know, they'd be somehow in this missile looking at a target on the screen. And because they had been trained to peck on this target and, and to get food in response to that, um, their training was so, they picked up this training so well that they would be very reliable pilots. And that, that project really didn't come to fruition, but it did lead Skinner onto the path that, that he eventually yeah, became yeah. famous for. He really liked working with pigeons. He just found them to be a great, before that, you know, a lot of uh, behavioral psychologists had been working with rats, um, but he really liked pigeons. He thought they were great uh, laboratory subjects. So there's, been a lot of laboratory research uh, work, working with pigeons um, to see if 
to see if they can shape their behavior in different ways, to see if they can um, understand certain things of what they see, visual uh, research on pigeons. Um, and it, a lot of it came out of this work that Skinner did. Now, Darwin famously begins Origin of Species with a long discussion of artificial selection in, in pigeon breeding. But you also, and you talk about that in the book, you also talk about the fact that there's there's ongoing evolution research that involves pigeons. Yeah, there is. I mean, I think it's um, it, it it actually is making a little bit of a comeback now because for a long time, you know, Darwin was so fascinated with pigeons because, and we're talking here about fancy pigeons, which a lot of people don't even know about, but there are these breeds of pigeons that are so amazingly uh, diverse. They're in shape and color and you know, their feathers, but uh, you wouldn't even recognize some of these as pigeons. Um, and Darwin was so fascinated because they were all came from a single species, and yet they looked so different. And so um, to him, it was uh, kind of a metaphor for evolution, the evolutionary process. You know, and a lot of, I was surprised to find that few scientists have uh, studied fancy pigeons since him. I mean, there's been a few papers here and there on on the color of of all these pigeons and how and the genetics of the, their coloration. But I think uh, I've talked to a couple scientists who are now picking this up as as a new model that can be used to understand evolution and to understand the genetics of it, the developmental biology of all these different uh, shapes, you know, that pigeons can take on. So they're very, you know, like dogs, they're actually very fungible species that can uh, take on all these different shapes and sizes, and so they're a perfect model for studying how the evolutionary process takes place. You studied pigeons all over the world. You went to Italy and Mm -hmm. New York and Boston and Asia, you looked at pigeons? Yeah, I, I haven't. Well, I, I, I mentioned Asia because that was uh, a trip I had taken. This was actually before I was interested in pigeons at all, but, but it was my initial travels that I had done a few years ago where I started to see pigeons everywhere in the world, and or at least everywhere I went in these big cities, and so that kind of got me thinking about them. But I did look in particular at pigeons in um, mostly in Europe and then in here in North America. And those are all the same species? It's all the same species, yeah. I mean, there are other um, types of pigeons and doves that are very common. Um, you know, morning doves, and over in um, Europe they have a collared dove, which is also invading a lot of areas. But the kind of, the, the stereotypical pigeon in the city that you see is very recognizable as all the same species. What got under your skin to the point where you were motivated to actually write a book about this? <laughs> Well, I think it was actually um, discovering a lot of really interesting information about them because I kind of had the attitude that they were just a very mundane animal. I mean, like like a lot of people. Uh, I had seen them in my travels, as I said. I'd seen them all throughout Europe, and they just seemed to be always there. And kind of, I think most people think of them as a, kind of a humorous Kind of an odd thing. Um, right, you talk about the yeah. New York, the, the stereotypical New Yorker cartoon yeah. that features a cheeky urban pigeon yes. with some kind of a wisecrack. Yeah, exactly, and that's kind of the, the same way. I, th- I, in fact, I remember being in Europe and uh, and seeing pigeons in um, St. Mark's Square in Venice, and and thinking, actually being kind of interested in how they were behaving. And yet I felt a little embarrassed that I was so interested in them because they're just not the kind of, you know, the kind of thing that people are normally interested in. Right. So, um, 
so I think that what what got me interested in the book is just uh, every time I looked up something about pigeons, I came up with something like that B.F. Skinner story or about a pigeon-guided missile, or I came up with these fancy pigeons that just looked you know, crazy, and then I found out that Darwin himself had bred some of these pigeons. And so it just turned into a really interesting story, and I realized that they were, they actually have a very, very interesting evolutionary history with people, um, and that the, the actual things that make them seem boring to us because they're everywhere, uh, in a way, makes them even more interesting because they're so successful. You tell the story of uh, going to see some some falcons be, being abandoned and finally feeling comfortable putting your binoculars up to see the birds. <laughs> right. Because you, you noticed that people thought it strange that you would look at pigeons at all. That you yeah. Would, uh, bird watchers don't pay any attention to pigeons. So um, uh, there's, there's an ongoing project. You talk about some research toward the end of the book, but there's actually a pigeon-related project that even little kids can take part in. Yes, yeah, it's called Project Pigeon Watch, and it's uh, run by the Cornell uh, Ornithology Lab. Uh, They do a few uh, urban bird studies, and it's really interesting because um, the questions they're looking at are real questions. Um, Street pigeons are extremely diverse in their colors. Uh, if you even if you look out in New York, you'll see white ones, you'll see spotted ones, you'll see red ones. And, and um, there's a question about, it seems that they actually use these colors to, ba- to base their mate choice on, so that they seem to have certain preferences when they choose their mate. So that's a question um, that science hasn't quite answered yet, is why, uh, what, what those preferences are and why they have them. And um, Project Pigeon Watch uh, enlists normal citizens and school children, and you can go out and gather information about the color varieties that you see in your area, and you can send in data, and it can help them um, study these questions, which is a great way, I think, to get people interested in, uh, in the urban nature that's right around them. So of all the fascinating things, I mean, the, you know, the, the pigeon-guided missile really stood out for <laughs> yeah. me, but... But uh, of all the things you learned in the course of researching the book, is there one thing that that really just blew you away? Well, yeah, it is hard to top that missile, but (laughs) I will say, you know, there are a lot of things that really surprised me. Um, One of the, I think, experiences that I had that was surprising for me was was actually going to see uh, wild rock pigeons living in Sardinia, which was something that um, I had never seen, you know, a truly wild pigeon, I'd seen the kind that we have in cities that are feral, and so they've been domesticated sometime in their history, and now they live, they still live in a wild in a way, but they've had this long history with people. And it was really interesting for me to see these wild pigeons, because they really behave so differently. I mean, you can tell that they're pigeons because they have the same color, you know, the iridescent feathers on the top, and the little black bar on their wings. They look like pigeons, but they behave totally differently. They they fly and they flit around these cliffs. Um, they live in cliff sides. They're very shy. They um, they almost, it was almost like watching bats the way they fly. And, and it was just, um, for me, it was a really interesting experience seeing how diverse their different behaviors could be depending on where they lived. Yeah, the timidity must have been really shocking after the, yeah. the urban pigeons we're used to that that you have to sort of step around. Yes, yeah, and they're g- strolling out in the street, and they don't care at all. <laughs> right. I, I 
want to thank you for changing my view on pigeons a little bit anyway, because growing up in New York City, I, I, I would watch pigeons run across the street when a cab would come. And I'd always think, you know, the pigeon was emblematic to me of unfulfilled potential <laughs> because it could fly, but it decided to run instead. Mm -hmm. So uh, now I see that that's part of their whole urban uh, repertoire of survival yeah. skills. Just like us, they, they've become a little sedentary <laughs> in the city. sedentary, fat and happy yes. birds. <laughs> well, this was great talking to you, and good luck with the book. Thanks, Steve. For more on the Pigeon Project that even kids can take part in, visit www.birds.cornell.edu slash pigeonwatch. And for more about Courtney Humphreys, visit her website, chumphreys.org. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one, a new species of bacteria has been discovered that lives only in human ears. Story two, researchers have created the world's thinnest balloon. Story three, researchers are trying to develop a tire for military vehicles that won't go flat if hit by an explosive because the tires don't get filled with air. And story four, the first virus has been discovered that infects another virus. Time's up. Story four is true. There's a huge virus called a mimivirus. It's actually as big as some bacteria. And researchers have found another smaller virus living on it. They published their findings in the journal Nature. The smaller virus, dubbed Sputnik, causes the infected larger virus to produce deformed structures. For more, see the August 6th article called Even Viruses Get Sick at Siam.com. Story three is true. Future military vehicles may ride on airless tires. The non-pneumatic tire would be made out of hard polymers in a honeycomb design. So most of the tire space would actually, in fact, be air, but just the regular old outdoor air. And since most of the tire's volume would be empty space, most shrapnel to hit the tire would go right through. And if up to 30% of the structure gets blown away, the tire still functions. For photos and more info, check out the August 11th article at Siam.com called Airless Tire Promises Grace Under Pressure for Soldiers. And story two is true. The world's thinnest balloon is made of a layer of graphite, pencil lead, just one atom thick. What's really cool is that even the smallest gas molecules can't escape from the tight lattice of the graphite, so no leakage. Cornell physicist Paul McEwen led the team that came up with the ultra-thin chamber. He noted that it could be useful for hypersensitive pressure, light, and chemical sensors, or for filters to make ultra-pure solutions. Speaking of tires, I liked bicycles, so I emailed McEwen and asked, could the membrane potentially be used as a coating for the interior of tires to stop the slow escape of pressurized gases within? And he emailed back, Interesting idea, perhaps so. Then again, sometimes pumping up the tires is a better workout than the bike ride. All of which means that story one about a new species of bacteria that lives only in human ears is totally bogus. Because what is true is that a new bacterial species has been found in the human mouth. 
The finding was published in the August issue of the International Journal of Systematic and Evolutionary Microbiology, which is itself a mouthful. Understanding the new bacterium could lead to new insights into tooth decay and gum disease, to which we can all say, ah, ha. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for the latest science news, opinion, and content from all our magazines. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.